Good morning. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it up to the book of First Peter, chapter 4. We are thinking about, learning about resilient faith, what it looks like to have a faith in Jesus that can endure not only the bumps and bruises that come with living in this world, but even the really painful, difficult stuff. Peter has a lot to say about that. And we're going to be thinking particularly today about suffering, which is probably not the most fun topic in the world, but it's important. Let's pray as we uh, get ready to dive into God's Word together. Father, you caused this Word to be written down for us from you. You have given us all of your word for our good. And that includes the words that can be uncomfortable for us. So I I just pray for us today. I pray for, for myself. I pray that you would open our minds and hearts to your truth, to love your truth. Lord, we know only your spirit can do that. So will you, will you just do what you alone can do, um, Help us not only understand it, but to embrace it, to uh, believe it, and to uh, believe it enough to live it. I pray you would help us with this, um, that you might be glorified in our lives, that we might have greater joy in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Suffering has really been a part of the Christian experience going back to the very earliest days of the church. Uh, There's a story that comes from A.D. 64, so that's way back, that's just 30 years or so after Jesus' death and resurrection. There was a, a devastating fire in the city of Rome, and rumors began to spread throughout the empire that the emperor Nero was somehow responsible for that tragedy. Well, he did something to uh, respond to those whispers. The Roman historian Tacitus tells us this. He says, to kill the rumors, Nero charged and tortured some people hated for their evil practices, the group known as Christians. First, those who confessed to being Christians were arrested. Then, on information obtained from them, hundreds were convicted. They were covered in the skins of wild animals and torn to death by dogs. They were crucified, or they were set on fire so that when darkness fell, they burned like torches in the night. Nero opened up his own gardens for the spectacle and gave a show in the arena. Now, at the other end of history, just three weeks ago, a video was released by the group that calls itself Islamic State, and the video shows three men, Dr. Abdul Masih and Wea, Bassam Michael, and Ashur Abraham, being shot in the back of the head 
Three other men were also shown kneeling before these bodies, one of whom says, Our fate will be the same as these if you do not take proper procedure for our release. Before stating his name, each man said, I am Nasrani, I am a Christian. And they were among 253 villagers abducted from a northeastern part of Syria. The militants are demanding $50,000 each for the remaining 200 hostages. And as far as I know, those 200 believers in Jesus remain in captivity uh, even this morning. I wonder how you respond when you hear stories like that. And you know what I wonder even more? I wonder how I would respond if one of those stories was my story. The Bible tells us this book of 1 Peter emphasizes that suffering for Jesus is normal in this sinful, broken world. It says that those who have entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ can expect to be misunderstood and mistreated because of our loyalty to Jesus. Jesus said, I've referred to it more than once, but it's worth hearing again, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. I know that. I know that he said that. I know that the Bible tells me that I should expect suffering. But for whatever reason, I don't know about you, but when I experience hardship, I tend to react like it's an unexpected thing, even though I've been told to expect it. And apparently I'm not the only one. Look how our Bible passage for today begins. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Well, that encourages me. It does, because that tells me I'm not the only one who tends to react to hardship with surprise. Uh, if Peter tells us that trials are not strange, they're not unusual, well, then we must be prone to think of them that way, or he wouldn't have had to say it, right? But he did say it. He tells us, don't be surprised. That's not the only thing he says, though, and it's what he says next that really challenges me, 1 Peter 4, 13. So he's just said, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Are you hearing it? Rejoice. Is it just me, or does that seem really unnatural? Well, I know it's not just me, because that's the point. It is unnatural. It's unnatural to respond to hardship with joy. It's, it's abnormal. It's foreign for people living in this world to respond to hardship with joy. 
And that is why it's one of the distinguishing marks of people who no longer belong to this world, but have become citizens of God's kingdom by putting their faith in Jesus Christ. These people, these Christians, these aliens and foreigners and exiles, as Peter describes us, we're supposed to be different. That's at the very heart of the word holy. You shall be holy for I am holy. Holy means different. And one of the key differences is right here. How we respond to hardship. Especially the hardship that comes to us because we belong to Jesus. Because we're identified with him. And the difference is responding to hardship not with surprise. Not with uh, shock not with self-pity, all of which I'm very familiar with. Not responding like that, but responding with joy. That's different. That's very different. Does it sound crazy to you? How can we possibly respond like that? Well, that's what we're going to read this passage to find out. So I'm going to back up, start again at verse 12, read down through verse 19. Okay, here we go. This is God's word to us. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Have you ever noticed that how you look at something can really affect how you feel about something. Uh, Or to put it another way, have you ever noticed how your perspective affects your attitude? Uh, Let's Just for instance, let's say somebody comes up to you and hands you a greeting card. Let's say it's your birthday. Somebody comes and gives you a birthday card. And as you're opening it up, you can see inside of there that there's a gift card. And based on, you know, the relationship you have with this person, you're thinking to yourself, well, that's nice. It's probably like a $5 gift card to Starbucks or something. And you open it up and you find out it's actually a $20 gift card. Well, at that point, you're going to think, yeah, you're going to have a good attitude. All right. That's nice. But now if that same card comes to you, and because of the relationship you have with a person, you're thinking it's going to be a $50 gift card, 
and you open it up, and it's only a $20 gift card. Your attitude's going to be different, maybe a little disappointed. Isn't that funny? It's the same gift. It's the same amount. And yet, your perspective affects your attitude about it. How you look at things is huge. That's really the point of this passage on suffering. For, uh, Peter is telling us that if, when we suffer, when we experience painful trials, if, if our response is one of surprise instead of one of joy, then our perspective needs to change. We need to see the thing differently. We actually need to see it from God's perspective because we're limited. Have you noticed that? We're limited. We're bound by time. We cannot see beyond our own experience without God's help. God alone sees the whole picture. God alone sees it from beginning to end. And it's only with his perspective that we can respond to suffering differently, to respond with joy instead of surprise or self-pity or anything else. So that's, that's what I want to talk about here. That's what I want to look at. How do we view suffering from God's perspective? How can we look at it from his perspective and then respond to it with joy? Okay? And I see a couple things here for doing that, for viewing suffering from God's perspective. There's probably more than two, but I'm going to give you two. Okay, first, you've got to see it. You've got to see your suffering as part of God's plan to maximize your joy. You've got to see suffering, I've got to see suffering, as part of a plan that God has to increase to enlarge, to maximize my joy, your joy. Peter says that the painful trial you're experiencing is not something strange. It's not weird. It's not foreign. It's not some random thing that really shouldn't be happening to a Christian. Really shouldn't be happening to somebody who, who trusts Christ and is trying to live an obedient life. And it's not meaningless, you know. It's not, God's not sitting up there with a pair of cosmic dice and whoop, your name came up, bang, suffering. No. Somehow, behind it all, in ways that you probably can't fully understand, there is the good purpose of the good God who is committed to your ultimate joy. Look again at verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Look at that. Suffer according to God's will. I don't know how else to understand that other than that, sometimes it is God's will for us to suffer. I, I just really don't 
understand how anybody can look at that and say it's never God's will for his people to suffer. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. Why? For what purpose? Well, did you notice that word test in verse 12? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. What do you think of when you hear the word test? What do I think of? Well, the first thing I think of is like an exam, you know, a history test, um, a math test, or maybe a, a driving test, some kind of exam, some kind of evaluation. Well, yeah, a test often means that. That's not what it really means here. This is a different idea of testing. Here, the testing means to refine or to strengthen, like uh, gold or silver is refined by heating it up until it melts and you skim off the impurities, or, or t- steel is tempered by heating it up and putting it in, in hot oil or something. And that's why the trial here is called a fiery trial. See that word? Fiery trial? It's a refining fire. The purpose of the trial is to make something better to make something stronger through the refining fire of suffering. Okay? So what's being made better? What here in the context is being made better through the refining fire of suffering? Do you see it? You ready? Here it is. Joy. Joy is made better. Joy is made stronger Joy is made more full, more complete through the refining fire of suffering. I'm not kidding. And I'm not making this up. Look at verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I don't think that fully captures it. I think the New International Version does a better job here. Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed. Overjoyed. That's the idea. Full, complete, just overwhelming joy when his glory is revealed. So the purpose of suffering is to take the little joy you experience now in Christ, and I'm not insulting your joy, okay? But the the joy you have in Jesus now is little compared to the enormous, overwhelming, huge joy that God wants it to be when your trials are over and when you're finally home and you see his glory. God is not satisfied with your puny little joy. He's not. He aims to make you a whole lot more joyful than you are in Jesus right now. Now, if you, if you have come to put your trust in Christ, okay, if you are a believer in Jesus... His goal is to maximize your joy. That's why it says in Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. If you belong to Jesus, if you have put your hope in him, if you have said, you know, I can't make myself good enough for God, I am fallen, I am messed up, I am broken, 
there's no way I can meet his standard, and I need God. I need to be right with him. And so you put your trust in Christ who was crucified for you and rose from the dead for you, and you're banking on him. All your hope is on him and not on how good you can be. Then that means you never experience anything. You never experience anything where somehow behind it all, God is not working for your ultimate joy and satisfaction. Let me say that again. If you belong to Christ, you never experience anything where God is not behind it working for your ultimate joy and satisfaction. That is quite a statement. How do I know it's true? Because the Bible says it. And it's easy to say it. It's really easy to say it. But it can be so hard it can be so hard to hold on to it and to get it and, and to just see the connection between the painful trials now and this joy, this maximum ultimate joy coming later. I mean, it just doesn't seem obvious, does it, at times, how these painful trials are going to relate to that joy. I mean, you just think, how in the world can this thing, how, how in the world can this thing I'm going through, this suffering that I'm experiencing, how can this possibly be for my ultimate joy? How can God turn this into joy? James 1, 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing, here you go again, testing, You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Okay, so suffering tests, refines, tempers, purifies, strengthens faith. Trials strengthen faith. Okay, how does that relate to joy? Well, we have to think about what faith is. And uh, we have to remember that faith is more than just a mental thing. I, I think that's what tends to come naturally to us. When we think of faith, belief, we think of believing something, we think of, yes, I agree with those facts. I affirm that truth. I, I agree that it's true. But see, in the Bible, faith almost always goes further than that. It's more than just agreeing with the facts. It's actually putting your trust, putting your reliance. So faith, the first way I used it, some of you have been worried about my back because I keep sitting in this chair. I can stand up. I can walk around. So, you're, you know, just relax. It's okay. So I want you to think about this chair for a minute, you know. I, do I believe this chair will support my weight? Well, that's a dumb question. You were just sitting in it. Okay, let's say I wasn't. Let's say I just walked up and I looked at this chair. Will this chair hold me up? Will this chair bear my weight? Yes, I believe it will. I have confidence. I, I intellectually, mentally agree that this chair will hold me up. That's not faith, biblically. It's not faith until I actually sit in the chair and I let it hold me up. So faith is reliance. It's reliance. It's, it's, it's 
trusting in and relying on the person of Jesus Christ. That's biblical faith in Christ. When we suffer, when we suffer, we have an opportunity to learn to rely, rely more and more on Jesus and less and less on ourselves. And by relying more on Jesus, we increase our capacity for joy. Okay, see, when everything is comfortable, you know, when everything's just going swimmingly, it's so easy to look for joy and to find joy in all kinds of other things, isn't it? You know, food, fun, entertainment, toys, chocolate. Okay, but if that's, that's as far as it ever goes, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any of those. You know, we, we gain pleasure, we, we've, you know, we experience happiness and all of those things. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those, but if, if that's as deep as our joy ever gets, it's fairly superficial. And it's not deep enough to satisfy our deepest craving for joy and satisfaction. It, they can't. Those things can't. Because we weren't meant to be satisfied with those things. We weren't meant to experience ultimate joy in those things. Only one thing ultimately will do. The one who created you to know him and in knowing him to experience ultimate joy and satisfaction. See, idolatry, you know, people think of idols as bad things. Idols are almost always good things. They're good things, but we take a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing. And we try to find our ultimate, you know, I mean, this is the thing I'm going to live for. This is the thing I'm going to find my ultimate purpose and joy and satisfaction in. And nothing will do. Only God will do. And one important way that you get to know God better is when you have to rely on Him because you can't rely on something else. So, uh, let's, let's come at it from a different angle. Okay, what, what makes a trial a trial? Why do we call some things trials? What is it that makes that thing painful? It's that in some way, we are being deprived of something that we usually find happiness in. Okay, whether that's maybe in a material thing that we've had and now we don't have it anymore, or more likely a relationship that we've really enjoyed and now because of conflict or even death or something, that relationship is not there for us. Or maybe it's our health, the health that we have enjoyed and the freedom we've enjoyed. Somehow there's something that that trial takes away from us. Maybe just for a while or maybe forever. And that means we can no longer rely on that thing, whatever it is, for happiness. Okay, well, God's plan, God's plan, God's determination is for us to rely on Jesus for our ultimate happiness. It's, it's not that there's anything wrong with finding happiness in other things that he gives us as gifts, but but our ultimate joy, our ultimate satisfaction, we are to find in Jesus alone. And it's so easy, isn't it? 
it's so easy to know that in our heads. And if I said, do you agree with that? You know, most of you in the room would go, yeah, I get it. I, I agree with that. Yep, yep, got to find our ultimate joy in Jesus, right? It's easy to say it. It's easy to agree with it. It's so different to actually live it out and experience it. But trials help us do that if we respond properly. When we're deprived of something that we've been relying on to make us happy, we now have an opportunity to learn to rely more deeply on Jesus. What do I mean by that? By praying more earnestly. Have you noticed that about trials? Have you noticed you tend to pray more when you're suffering? You tend to pray more intensely, more deeply, more often? Or by reading his words to us more, more intensely, more eagerly, more hungrily? Or learning to uh, pursue him more earnestly? By paying closer attention to his directions, to his promises, to all the resources that he gives us, like his people? And when we rely on him more deeply, we, we begin to discover that he is sweeter, stronger, more faithful, more reliable than we realized before. The point of suffering is for you to learn to find your joy in him now more deeply so that you can experience that joy more deeply when you see him. Suffering is one of God's ways for teaching us to rely more fully on him. And that increases our capacity. It increases our capacity for joy. Let me explain that. We have in our household two cars. We have a Honda Accord and we have a Chevy Suburban. These two vehicles have two very different capacities. Just think about the gas tanks for a minute. The Honda Accord has a tank, I think it holds about 15 gallons, maybe 20. Meanwhile, the Beast, the Suburban, holds over 40 gallons. Now, if gasoline were joy, there's no way the Accord will ever experience as much joy as the Suburban. It can't. It doesn't have a big enough tank. The only way it's going to experience more joy, as much joy as the Suburban, is if somehow it gets a bigger tank. And I don't know where you'd put it. In the same way, you and I have a joy tank. We have a joy tank, and the only way we're going to experience more joy is to get a bigger tank. And suffering is one of God's ways, one of the ways he uses to enlarge our joy tanks. Now, that may not make sense to you now, but unless you learn to depend more and more on Jesus and less and less on other things for your joy, your tank will not grow. So, when you first hear 
what we're reading here, when you first hear that it is going to be, at times in your life, it's going to be God's will for you to suffer, you, you know, that's not going to sound like good news when you hear that. But here's why it is. You know what that means? It means God is not content for you to simply know about the joy of Jesus Christ. He wants you to experience it in all of its fullness. And he will do whatever it takes to make that happen, including suffering. So, that's one of the things we've got to keep in mind. If we're going to view suffering from God's perspective, we have to see it as part of God's plan to maximize our joy. The other thing is, you need to see it as proof that God's Spirit rests on you. See it as proof that God's Spirit rests on you. Verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, you are happy, you are fortunate, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So this is talking about suffering that comes your way because you belong to Jesus, because you're identified with him. And I've mentioned before, that hasn't really been very common in our nation. We've been kind of living in this little bubble that much of the world has not been living in. Uh, but I expect more and more, it to become more and more common to be insulted or slandered or mistreated because you're identified with Christ. And the point is, it's hard but if you're insulted as a follower of Jesus, if you're mistreated as a follower of Jesus, you need to see that for what it really is. You need to see it as a reason to be happy. Because what it means is you're actually connected to God and God's Spirit dwells in you. That's what it's saying. Now, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 5, Peter says this about those who trust in Jesus. He says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What's that saying? It's saying that God no longer manifests his presence in a physical building, the temple. Instead, God now displays his presence in his people, believers in Jesus. He dwells in them. And that is such an amazing statement when you stop and consider who God is. When you consider that he is absolutely holy, when you consider that he is perfectly good, it is not a casual thing for the all-holy God to dwell in the midst of sinful people. And if you go back, I want to just point you to a story back in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 40, <laughs> in, in Exodus there is this description that, that, uh, of this building of this thing called the tabernacle that God gave specific, very specific instructions to Moses and the people to build. And this was going to be a portable temple where God would manifest his presence in the midst of his people as they traveled from place to place. Well, get, you get to Exodus chapter 40, and, and Moses puts it all together. It says, Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance of the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud, okay, the manifested presence of God, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, 
and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses couldn't even go in because the presence of God was so awesome. And here, Peter is saying that that very same God dwells in the believer in Jesus. How can that be? How can it possibly be true? How can God dwell with us? Look at the answer in Hebrews 10.14. Because by one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. It's not about you and me making ourselves good enough for God's Spirit to dwell in us. It's about Jesus making us good enough for God's Spirit to dwell in us by his sacrifice, by dying in our place. Okay, so what this means is that when people give you a hard time for being, for belonging to Jesus, just remember what that means. That means the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. That's very comforting. You may wonder if you could actually endure intense suffering for Jesus like the people, the stories I started with. I know I wonder that. How would I really do? If I knew somebody was holding a gun or a knife to me and said, deny Jesus or you die, how am I to do? Well, if you really belong to Jesus and the spirit of glory and of God rests on you, he will enable you to endure. And the grace will be there when you need it. You will be able to bear it because he's with you. Well, there's more here but we don't have time for it. It's a big subject. It's one we need to think about. It's one we need to pray about. It's one we need to encourage each other with. Jesus said we will experience trouble in this world because we belong to him. And it's going to be difficult and it's going to be painful. And we who are accustomed to living in comfortable, affluent America, we have a very difficult time seeing any value in suffering. But that's because we don't see it the way God sees it. He is our faithful creator. And we need to entrust ourselves to him. Always, but especially at those times. He will see us through it. <sighs> he will make us, he will make it worth it. He will make it worth it when we see him. Let's bow together and pray. If you're here today and you have not yet said yes to Jesus and his death and resurrection on your behalf, the life that he offers you as a free gift, you could do that today just by asking him. If you're here and you know him and you're going through a hard time and you're just, you can't see how it fits, 
I probably can't see how it fits either. But the word of God comes to you today and says, yes, God is with you. God knows. God cares. God has a plan. And he is using this. He will use this so that when you stand in his presence, you will be overjoyed. He's increasing your capacity for joy. So learn to rely on him. And the next time I'm going through a hard time, will you remind me of what I just said? Because I'm going to need to hear it too. So let me just encourage each one of us now to call out to him to entrust ourselves to our faithful creator. Father, you are faithful, absolutely faithful. You are sovereign, somehow above and beyond all that we can see. And you are at work, accomplishing your good purpose. You are using your, the, your suffering people today throughout the world to show the world the glory of Jesus. And many thousands are turning to you because of what they're seeing your people go through and how they're going through it. Lord, will you give us the strength to be faithful when our time of testing comes, whenever that is. Help us be faithful. Give us strength and wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.